What is consciousness? It's a debate that has been at the center of philosophical arguments for millennia, touching on the meaning of existence, sensing, perception, mind versus matter, and so many more fundamental topics. All of that work has crescendoed in importance over the last few years as artificial intelligence has reached ever more sophisticated levels. Where does AI cross over from intelligent to conscious? And does that even matter? Just as we need more theories of consciousness, though, we are suddenly stumbling upon a consciousness winter, or so explains our special guest today, Eric Hoel, the writer of the excellent newsletter, The Intrinsic Perspective. Eric argues that scientists need to develop a grand theory around consciousness, but have been relegated to mundane questions in the subsystems of our brains instead. Unsurprisingly, we have had little to no progress on a theory of consciousness. Eric, with me, Danny Crichton, along with Josh Wolf and Sam Arsman here at Lux, talk about the consciousness winter, the divide between intelligence and consciousness, free will versus destiny, and finally, integrated information theory and its place as a stepping stone to a deeper theory of the brain. This is part one of a two-part interview, so let's get started. Um, so, Eric, I want to start with a, a concept you've been theorizing and, and writing about on your Substack, which you've dubbed the consciousness winter. It's a parallel concept to one in the artificial intelligence world of an AI winter, where there are after sort of two decades, 60s and 70s of, of massive speculation about the potential for AI to change our world. There was a sort of collective pulling back of both researchers and funders who felt that the field was hitting dead ends and was effectively moribund. What is the consciousness winter and why are we worried about it? The consciousness winter was in some ways much larger than the AI winter and lasted for, for much longer. Um, it I would probably peg the depths of it around the 1930s or 40s with the rise of behaviorism, led by people like B.F. Skinner, who are sort of like semi-household names. And they became very, very famous with this sort of this rising critique, really, of previous methods. If you go back and you look at the early psychologists, the early neuroscientists, they're very open in talking about consciousness. You have people like William James, who coined the term the stream of consciousness, and that's writing in the 1880s. Then you have some of the early famous psychologists, people who are sometimes called, you know, the fathers of psychology, like Wilhelm Wundt. And, you know, what he's doing is ha he, he wants to create something that looks like the periodic table for basic sensations, right? So he has, you know, his poor graduate students and volunteers, you know, picking out every possible shade of color, you know, things like this. And, and I, you know, I think at some point they accumulate like, you know, the 30,000 different, you know, tiny variations and how, 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 how senses can differ. You know, all that stuff ends up getting heavily critiqued by this rising tide of behaviorism and consciousness gets, and there's a few reasons for that, right? There's like um, the, you know, logical positivism is rising in the same time. There's the Vienna circle. There's, there's a sort of, you know, th there is a very, Nowadays, it might be critiqued as scientism that that gets a strong, you know, tailwind in the 1910s, 1920s. And that effectively kicks out consciousness from being considered under the scientific purview until I think it's arguable until essentially the 80s and 90s. And so you lose two, three generations of of research into consciousness. And it's very strange because, of course, you know, if you if you ask a normal person 
um, you know, most of their cognitive life is built around a stream of consciousness, right? Like we all, we all experience this. We wake up in the morning and we have experiences and we, we want to drink coffee. So we go get coffee and so on. It seems like our stream of consciousness is sort of the effective level to describe our own, you know, behavior. It's sort of, I, I've argued the, the main purpose of what the organ of our brain does. But then neuroscientists are placed in this very strange position where you're not allowed to talk about consciousness, but you are allowed to talk about some of its subcomponents, right? So you can talk about attention, you can talk about memory, you can talk about you can talk about perception, but you have to be kind of careful. And it's really only until the 80s and 90s when there is sort of this streak of luck where people who have immense scientific prestige like uh, Francis Crick, who people might recognize as one of the co-discoverers of the structure of DNA, and Ger Gerald Edelman, who's less well-known, but you know he also won a Nobel Prize for essentially figuring out the big picture of how the immune system functions. Very, very famous. And, and these two men sort of looked at their own disciplines, felt, well, I, I solved that. And uh, and looked around for big open problems in science, and they and they fixated on consciousness. And through, you know, we shouldn't give them the two of them all the credit, but through their efforts, they create this new fledging field of the neuroscience of consciousness that really takes off in the 1990s. But I think that we're still like almost as a culture, we're still, and certainly as 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 science and its subfields, they're still sort of feeling a lot of these ramifications. Consciousness is still not very popular to study. It's still sort of very fragile um, and, and so on. Uh, one of the things you mentioned is that people were okay with um, memory and attention, perception was sort of on the periphery, and then consciousness forget. That strikes me as the first two are arguably measurable. You can measure somebody's attention where they're directing gaze. You can uh, do tests of memory. Uh, perception uh, invokes uh, uh, idea of qualia, which maybe you can also explain to people. Uh, and then, of course, consciousness, you know, goes into sort of the what is it like to be a bat phenomenon. So uh, what is observably objective or objectively observably empirically with attention and memory seems less so with perception and consciousness. Is that accurate? And is that part of the reason why? It's I think I think it's it's Part of the reason in that, or, or, or to put it even more broadly, we can very easily conceive of some sort of mechanical reason for something like attention, right? So there's a very popular hypothesis in neuroscience, which is effectively that attention is, um, you know, suppression. Uh, there's sort of this spotlight of, of activation that's allowed, and then everything else outside the spotlight is suppressed in terms of its activity. So, you know, to, to the degree to which that's actually true, you know, is a little bit debatable. But certainly, it's a it's it's very intuitively, mechanically sensible for how you might get it. Something like the experience of red, right? What what's the actual mechanical thing that's occurring when you experience red? And you know, you can you can quickly start to you know, expound simple hypotheses, well, maybe there's a big sort of color space and you're at a particular point in the color space, but it's like, okay, well, why is there sensations involved in that color space? Why, 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 is, why couldn't you just invert it, right? Um, and, and get like different um, sensations and so on. And these were, you know, these are things that people have long um, struggled with. I think one of my favorite 
my favorite things is to uh, track down, uh, you know, ideas that have made contemporary thinkers in philosophy of mind uh, famous, and then just realize that they're just literal, complete repetitions of the exact same debates that you know William James, you know, was having back in the in the eighteen eighties, um, and that you know all this stuff, including many of the famous thought experiments um, and so on, have are literally just just repetitions and lifted. So the, these issues around how difficult consciousness have been with us for a long time. It was sort of dur- during this um, this consciousness winter that they 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 they, they really uh, got completely sort of buried. Like one side really strongly won out. You know, I, as I I was sort of investigating this because people have not really written too much about it, and I realized there's sort of this entire book to be written where I think people sort of underestimate how much impact you know, nerds can have, right? I mean, if you look at contemporary Silicon Valley, it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, understand the, the, the sort of cultural impact that, uh, you know, nerds can have. But, you know, if you look back at what happened to culture when science exiled consciousness out into the cold, and it's things like the replacement of modernism, which is very interested in people's psychologies. You know, you have people like James Joyce or Virginia Woolf, um, you know, or Hemingway, you have like you know, you have, you have realism and romanticism, and that gets sort of replaced by postmodernism, which I think could be accurately described as being very distrustful of consciousness and sort of not not really you know thinking about text as text qua text, you know, um, or, or or thinking about playing you know um, meta games with, with with your art or so on. You know, it's like the difference between like a Matisse and a Pollock, right? A Pollock is all about the mechanical production of the art, right? And people theorize about this all the time, this sort of like big history stuff where they say, well, you know, it's a mechanical age, you know, or so on. Um, and I think that you could just as, as well write an entire book about, you know, it's very, it's very interesting that consciousness as consciousness gets exiled from science the arts and culture sort of become more skeptical about consciousness and experience and um actually found that if you look at the google books trend of just the word consciousness alone you have this massive dip right around 1940 where it really reaches its nadir right exactly where you would sort of peg the depths of the consciousness winter and the total supremacy of behaviorism at all the elite institutions at almost exactly those times. It's like the culture itself is just less interested in the word. Do you think there are hints in like the culture and the arts right now of like trends towards another consciousness winter? Like, I mean, I feel like, and certainly like people love writing memoirs and things like that. So that, I would say that that points to not there, they're not being a consciousness winter, but are, are there, are there certain trends that you think um, are pointing towards maybe like harbingers or something like that? Yeah, I think that there's, I, I wouldn't, you know, I would say that if you were to say another one is for sure coming, that would be, you know, sounding the alarm and some sort <laughs> yeah. of, yeah, that would be a, appropriately alarm. alarmist. Yeah, so the fire, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get the fire extinguisher. Yeah, so, so, but 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 I do think that given that it's happened once before, we should be we should be maybe a little bit wary of it because it obviously can happen. And I think there's basically two forces that make me like slightly suspicious or wary. Um, and one force is within this subfield of consciousness research itself. Um, there has been, first of all, a lack of progress in that there is no real fundamentally well accepted scientific theory of consciousness. And then there are various 
uh, various proposals, and some of them are quite controversial. So, you know, perhaps one of the most controversial ones is integrated information theory. I actually helped develop some aspects of integrated information theory in graduate school. I worked with the theories originator, and um, and 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 that theory has issues around you know f- falsification and falsifiability, and it's very possible that all theories of consciousness might end up having some issues around falsification and, and falsifiability. Um, and then you can sort of have a, a debate around that. Uh, uh, to give people an analogy, they might have heard that string theory has you know consistent debates around, does it really qualify as a traditional science because we're sort of talking about things? We, we can get elegant theories, and then it's very unclear how we could falsify those very elegant theories, like their elegance is almost their downfall in some ways. Um, and so that's a real debate that, you know, has has played out. And a similar debate is sort of occurring within uh, consciousness research. And there are some, you know, particularly individuals. Um, and recently, there was very big news. It was in, you know, the Atlantic and the New York Times and a few other places that were writing about nature and science, I think, um, where, you know, a group of scientists basically signed a, a letter calling integrated information theory, one of these leading theories, pseudoscience. And I think once words like pseudoscience start getting thrown around to things that are relatively respectable and lead to, you know, a lot of neuroimaging, you know, uh, papers and things like that, once you're sort of willing to call things that are that well-established pseudoscience, there is a worry. And then just to complete the second point at a more cultural level, um, you know, most people would say that GPT-4 is not conscious. Um, I think that's probably correct. Um, I think there probably is nothing it's like to be GPT-4. I can't say with certainty because we, that would require us having a successful, well-tested theory of consciousness. Uh, but let's assume for a second that it's not conscious, but it can still do all sorts of intelligent things, highly intelligent things, which means that consciousness and intelligence are relatively orthogonal. You can have vast intelligence with minimal consciousness. And that's very much unlike humans. And I think that there's sort of this cultural danger where we look at these things and we say, well, this thing can speak and it can move around. And, you know, once you give it a robotic body and so on. And, um, you know, maybe humans are just sort of very foolish biological large language models. Um, you know, it's, a, it's like it's like, you know, we always see ourselves through the lens of the technologies that we have, right? We see ourselves through the lens of, of, of mechanical work or clocks or earlier than that clocks, and then the logical functions of, of a computer. And, you know, for a long time, everyone said the mind was a computer. And it's always, always somewhat unclear exactly what that meant, right? Um, it had all sorts of philosophical difficulties baked into it. And I don't think it's been a very hyper successful model to, you know, a- apply and think about the mind as some sort of, you know, Turing machine that's trying to complete operations. It's very unclear that that's actually a very useful frame. But that last, that's been going on for decades. So, you know, I can only imagine what's going to happen once, you know, we get you know, some, something that looks a lot like AGI and it's some sort of non-conscious being, the attraction to say that the mind is like that is going to be very high. You know, I'm struck by 
all of your comments of just how interdisciplinary the study of consciousness is. You've talked about the natural sciences, so biology, the biological basis of the brain, where does this consciousness come from? You've mentioned the social sciences, psychology, um, yeah. then and philosophy, and then you're, you're getting into the humanities. So you're getting into um, stories, mentioning Virginia Woolf, novels, stream of consciousness, um, the Willie James kind of quote, which kind of goes over between the two. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious, so, and when, you know, obviously with Lux, a lot of our companies are very interdisciplinary. Sam, our scientists and residents, obviously very interdisciplinary yourself. Um, you're kind of connecting all these different ideas together in one place. Is that some of the challenge around the study of consciousness? Like, what, you know, is it just that we just don't have an institution? So if we had like a, an NIH for consciousness, all of this would be solved? Or is it more fundamental where actual production of science, the way we have to think about this, just doesn't kind of meet the same bar as like neuroimaging and we have a, a you know, a cancer cell and we can see it with an instrument in the same way? It's a great question. I think that's consciousness research. Um, my opinion is that it probably will not occur incrementally. It's probably going to be some modern day equivalent of a patent clerk, right? Um, who comes up with something that's just so sort of explanatorily elegant um, that you know, that we, we get essentially a paradigm shift. I think that that's the most likely outcome for the current confusion. There are sort of two alternative, there are sort of two reasons for that. One is that science has to proceed as an institution, even if science itself is not making any progress. So neuroscience is a great example of this. We do not have very many good big picture theories of how the brain functions that we can slot uh, results into. But we have to get results because we have to get grants and we have to publish papers and so on. So like the, the, the structure of science, it's like this big ship that you can't just turn off. You can't just stop it. Um, so the fields of science that are often that often, you know, languish are those in which you need really big ideas and those big ideas are very hard to come by. And part of the success actually of people like Francis Crick and, and, and Gerald Edelman is just in allowing people to publish papers with the term consciousness in the title. So at least you can have this living subfield where people can go if they're interested in it and sort of interact with it. Um, the degree to which that really constitutes progress is probably pretty low. And it's, it's, it's pretty low in simply because, as you say, um, either the problem is, is very interdisciplinary or alternatively, it's just extremely difficult to figure out. Um, and there is some sort of you know, conceptual blockage that we run into it, that we run into when we consider it naturally. Uh, let's take some of the uh, thinkers. And I, I'd love to get, because I respect you, who you respect and, you know, without being ad hominem, super negative, like who you would sort of say, well, maybe their theory is not so great. Uh, for example, let's just go through some. As you described, Crick, I remember reading, I think it was late 90s, maybe it was early 2000s, uh, Astonishing Hypothesis. And uh, I was caught by the cover. I opened it up. Uh, I think it was the macaque um, uh, primates uh, decoding the visual cortex. Uh, but it was it was almost a computational circuit diagram that I remember of understanding the flows and the hierarchical structure. Maybe two years later, then there was the book on intelligence by Hawkins, uh, by Jeff Jeff Hawkins, who was a computer scientist uh, and was sort of invoking the Cajal hierarchical structure memory prediction framework. 
Uh, you fast forward to today, and that, that always caught me, the idea that you were sort of receiving stimulus, you would store that as a memory, you would make instantaneous predictions, uh, uh, and then you would error correct. And uh, I think most recently, uh, you've got Carl Friston, who I often find a bit, um, I can't tell if Carl is like brilliant and super smart or like, you know, as people say, like you can dazzle them with brilliance or baffle them with bullshit. Uh, you know, I, I'm not quite sure where he's on the spectrum, so I want you to weigh in on that. And then most recently, uh, there was another guy who wrote The Hidden Spring, and then uh, there was somebody else on the memory prediction. Oh, uh, Andy Clark, uh, with uh, who, who's sort of a Friston friend uh, who wrote uh, The Experience Machine or The Prediction Machine. Uh, and, and so as a mechanistic way of like experiencing reality, that piece makes sense. And then I'm sort of personally comfortable to say, well, consciousness to me is the awareness of my awareness of those things, that there's some thing outside of the system at a meta level that is observing itself and, uh, and, and that that is it, that, that snails and other lower organisms uh, may be making predictions in a um, input-output system, almost in a computational biology form, but they're not actually conscious. Uh, they're responding to stimuli, food sources, light, gradients, uh, trying to reduce those, trying maybe even in a sense that they don't actually have the personal uh, awareness agency of that. And then that jumps all the way to the most recent thing that has inspired me, which is Sapolsky, that if you were to ask me like the number one thing that I've changed my mind on, and I'm curious where you stand on this also, free will, do we have it or not? And uh, I subjected my family to a very interesting debate recently between Roy Baumeister on one end, who said, of course we have free will, and here's all the reasons in the agency why, and you had Sapolsky on the other end, who said, of course we do not have free will, and uh, it, it, it's an illusion. And, uh, and, and okay, so, so I've thrown a bunch of names, texts, books, some of them legitimate scientists, some of them more popularizers. Where do you sit on this spectrum? Who's for real? Who's full of shit? <laughs> uh, what, Hope you were taking notes an, uh, with a checklist. Uh, yes. Well, well, okay. So, so, so just <laughs> what, what, what an opportunity to pronounce judgment. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, 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 from from the arc of of Crick and call it Hawkins' memory prediction, all the way to uh, modern day torchbearers of that, in a sense, from Andy Clark and uh, Carl Friston, and then free will that results from that. Yeah. So, so I think I think you, the the way you just broke it up. Um, makes 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 a, a good deal of sense. I mean, I, I would say that there's there's essentially people like Francis Crick, um, you know, or um, you know, um, Mark Psalms. I, I would sort of group group them pretty closely together to a certain degree. Um, you know, I think there's sort of this approach, uh, and I think it can be a very good approach. So, so I don't, I don't mean to say that this approach is, is bad. I think it's a smart approach, which is to say, listen, we're, we're not really going to figure out exactly like, at least right now, exactly what's going on about why it is that little neurons puffing, you know, chemicals at one another can constitute a subjective experience. We're going to, we're going to put that aside. But we are going to say, well, maybe there's some neural correlates to that um, that we could investigate. And if we sort of get enough data and we investigate enough, um, you know, we'll, we'll sort of constrain our theorizing in some way or the answer will sort of pop out. And, and maybe we were just sort of philosophically confused about 
thinking that even this was confusing. Maybe it's maybe it's deeply obvious. Um, I think those people are like dead wrong, <laughs> um, just completely wrong. But it's very smart in that it allows for scientific progress to proceed. So it, 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 it's, it's like a declaration of neutrality to a certain sense. The only issue I have with, with those people is that often they get over their skis and then begin to assume that what is really a, a neutral stance is something, um, is something a lot more. And I would peg um, Psalms under that and I would peg Crick under that where I just don't really find, you know, their explanations of consciousness, um, you know, super convincing because I think it's all sort of just skirting around these very difficult, uh, almost metaphysical questions about how you get, you know, subjectivity out of objectivity. And they sort of don't want to address that, you know, directly. And then I think sometimes they say they address that directly without really realizing that they're that they're not. Um, at the same time, then you have these more um, computational math based approaches to consciousness. And you could definitely slot somebody like Carl Friston under that um, under that approach. And, um, you know, as for Carl, um, um well, I, I think he, I think he, I think he was once at a conference and he called me an idiot. Um, let's see. As for Carl, I'll be very nice and take the high road and say that, and say that I, I, I think, I think if anything, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the woo that Friston produces is basically co-authored woo. Most of his his solo stuff um, of you know the free energy principle um, makes a great makes a great deal of sense. I'll, I'll put it like this though: if you if you say that you have something um, that you know is sort of the source of all knowledge and that you can use to create intelligence, then you really have to explain why it is that large language models have nothing to do with it and don't operate by those principles, and why it is that you've never been able to scale up toy examples into something that's actually convincing or useful or that can rival, you know, something like like just like backpropagation. Um, okay, so so right, that, that, that's pretty fundamental, and I think that that. Um, applies to a lot of theories. I'll include some of the theories I worked on under that rubric of, you know, integrated information theory. If integrated information theory is so, if, if integrated information is sort of the fundamental key to consciousness and the mind, how come it's so easy to build minds without really paying much attention to the integrated information? Um, I think these are very, very tough questions. Um, and I've never gotten a good answer uh, for, for something like that, uh, you know, from anyone. Um, I, you know, I, I think that when it comes to when it comes to consciousness, if you look at the people who are making sort of the most direct progress, I think it's like um, people trying to create mathematical formalisms and express their theories mathematically. I think as long as people are doing that, I rate that as a kind of progress because it's building up a theoretical vocabulary and tradition. And I think eventually you have to put some math in there. Like they're, they're, they're just, you, you, you are, another way to put it is that, you know, everything that happens outside your window, the leaves falling, the, the you know, the, the, the rain, it's all following pretty simple physical laws. Similarly, whatever experiences, uh, you know, your, your, your diverse neural activity 
is uh, is is creating or accompanying or identical to. You can sort of hedge on the terminology there. Wh- whatever that is, it has to be something that's relatively lawful and that can be expressed in some sort of formal way. And that's where I think the progress will come from. And so what I like about people like Friston is basically just that they're using so much math. <laughs> so so uh, two two questions. One, I want you to explain information uh, integrated information theory in the simplest way possible. And I'm going to give you, when I was trying to do this with my uh, youngest, uh, what ChatGPT came up with as the analogy, which is something, by the way, to Danny's point of reasoning by analogy, one of the things that I think conscious entities do. Um, and then I'd love for you to share if if you had to say right now your best theory of consciousness, you know w- what is it? Uh, uh, and, and and you know in, in a simple terms, explaining like a five year old. So so let me start with the simple definition. Uh, let's assume your brain is a magical kingdom. In this kingdom, there are lots of little fairy workers. They're like parts of your brain. Each fairy does a special job. Uh, one can smell flowers. One can remember the way back home. One is good at tasting different kinds of candy. Now imagine all these fairies need to talk to each other to make the magic happen. If the fairy that smells the flower finds a new flower, she tells the memory fairy uh, so she can remember it for later. And if the tasting fairy tries a new candy, she tells the smelling fairy. And so IIT, according to ChatGPT, is a fancy way of saying that all these fairies work together super well. And they don't just do their job. They share information. They make decisions as a team. And that is what makes the magic in the kingdom really powerful. So sort of like inside out. Yeah. yeah. Pix, Pix, Pixar. Math, Pixar. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. so let's m- remove the math. But if you can explain IIT and even the concept of phi, um, I'd be amazed. I can. Yeah, I can. I can absolutely explain that. Um, but but I will say it's not my preferred theory of consciousness. So so, so just to there's sort of a, a, a separation there, right? You asked for. Both, both. both my yes. my best guess and then like an explanation of IIT. Yes, um, my best guess would not actually be IIT, um, and I and we can just skip over what my best guess would actually be. No, I want your best just, guess. You're no, then I just start spilling the papers I'm going to write, and I know what happens then. Oh, um, okay. So, so you, you 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 get more. Yeah, you, it's worth being paranoid sometimes. Um, <laughs> No, but 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 I think IIT is probably the best leading current theory, again for reasons that have not so much to do with its correctness as its ambition, um, and its formalization. To be honest, I don't think that there is another theory of consciousness that currently exists other than integrated information theory. I, I, I stand by that very firmly. I don't think that others deserve to really be called theories. Why? Because here is what you want out of a theory of consciousness. You want to take a brain state, and you can define brain state you know, relatively loosely. We don't have to involve any math here. We just mean what neurons are firing and what neurons aren't, right? Something like that. It could be a dynamical trajectory. It could be just a frozen brain state, whatever. But you can imagine some super neuroimaging data where you're getting all the neurons that are firing in some human's brain. And you take that, and then you ask this question. What is this brain conscious of without looking at what the person is looking at or so on, right? And and here's the most important thing. You want to answer that question in a formal way, 
right? You don't want to just throw some like rigor, some, some like statistics at it and say, okay, well, maybe it's kind of maybe seeing this or it's kind of seeing this or I kind of have a guess about it or so on. It's like you want like an actual answer. And so you can think of this as a mapping. You can think of this as a mathematical mapping between just between physical brain states and descriptions of experiences, what those experiences are. No theory of consciousness can even be, can, there's no current theory of consciousness for which you could feed in a brain state and get out some description of the experiences other than integrated information theory. Other than, so th that alone, like, like forget if it's correct or, or what, what, what have you, right? That alone just puts it so many leagues, sh sh shoulders above um, all these other theories that are like, well, maybe it's kind of a global workspace. Maybe, be, you know, be, maybe, maybe, maybe it's like a big bulletin board, because, right? And then you put stuff up on the bulletin because board. Because it's testable in that sense. There's something empirical that you can measure and test. And, and, and it's, it's it, it, exactly so. So that that's what's kind of funny, though, right? Is that you know there are some issues around like testing and falsification for IIT, but it's very arguable that some of the other theories just they're not. You can't even really apply them um, to anything other than the loosest notion of of neuroimaging data. But they don't provide a mapping. Like here's a very simple question: What counts as a global workspace? This is so. So the reason I keep bringing up global workspaces because traditionally one of the big um, theories of consciousness that's often considered as sort of a rival to integrated information theory is something called global workspace theory. Um, and it was, you know, originated by Bernard Bars and then has been sort of, you know, developed by, by a couple other people as well. And I think in general, it's very good work, right? I don't mean to, um, you know, say that it's, it's, um, you know, bad or, or obviously dumb, but it's also just, I think, not even in the same league, because if I ask, you know, the theories originators, what counts as a global workspace? No one can even tell me. Like, let's say I make a character, an NPC in Skyrim, right? And the NPC in Skyrim just, you know, it's like a guard, right? And he walks around the town. And let's say I programmed it so that basically, you know, the guard is taking his commands and sort of putting it up into this little global workspace that little subcommands can work on. And he's very simple. Like, it's like this minimal global workspace. Okay. Is the guard conscious? Is this NPC conscious? Is that all it took? If he, if he takes an arrow to the knee, is he actually taking an arrow to the knee? I think most of the time you'd say no, but people don't even, they don't even have these discussions. The only people who have discussions like that are the people who worked on integrated information theory. So that's what I mean by like, it's, it's sort of, you know, a subtle point where I come across as almost like evangelical about integrated information theory. And then I also have publicly said that is almost certainly wrong. <laughs> um, but, but that's why I'm so sort of pro it and sort of, sort of, sort of gun and ho it is that I don't even think that the other theories that are out there other than, you know, some way less popular ones um, that are, you know, just hints at being developed. Are, are anywhere near capable of the, you give them data about the human brain, like a real, true, huge, huge data set about the human brain. And then it tells you in a formal, lawful way what it is conscious of. I don't think that that even exists. And it, it doesn't even exist for things like free energy principle. It doesn't exist for things like global workspace. It doesn't exist for, you know, Francis Crick saying that maybe it's, you know, maybe it's oscillations at a certain frequency or whatever. It's like, Okay, let's say I just have neurons in a dish and they're oscillating at that particular frequency. Are we talking about something that's... Like, these are very, very simple things, but the only people who sort of 
think about consciousness the way a physicist thinks about physics are generally the people working on integrated information theory. Yeah, but- and so that's why I've been very impressed. And um, that's why um, I say it's, it's sort of the theory that you should judge against. But I don't think it's correct. I think we'll eventually get some sort of something that looks kind of like it, but is sort of way more uh, like obviously acceptable. <laughs>